0: Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarate, your host. This is episode number 29, a conversation with the legendary Jules Kroll, the pioneer of the corporate security industry and business intelligence. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues.
1: Organizational structures as a key component For helping to develop
0: white knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been proven. Welcome back to FinCast. I am honored to be with the legendary Jules Kroll, whom I'm proud to call my partner at K2 Integrity. uh, one of the greatest professionals I've ever had the Chance to work with. We're discussing business intelligence, asset recovery, and the imperative of financial integrity. Frankly, I I want the listeners, the Fincast listeners, to get a great sense of this man and this professional and the scope of his career, which began in the early 70s, really starting uh, the corporate security industry and what we now know as business intelligence and spanning over the course of now decades. Uh, everything from cybersecurity to financial integrity to bond rating. Uh, Jules, for those who don't know, is the executive chairman and co-founder of K2 Integrity. He's the chair of Kroll Bond Ratings Agency. He's a member of the board, I would argue a founder of Blue Voyant. He's a chair of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice Foundation, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, uh, and a leader in everything he does. Jules, welcome to FinCast. I'm glad we're getting this opportunity.
1: Thank you, Juan. My pleasure.
0: Jules, what, what I thought we could do is, is talk a little bit both about your career, but but frankly, what you're doing today, what we're doing at K2 Integrity, because one of the things that I, I know about you is that you're a force of nature, and you are still actively engaged in cases, and asset recovery, in driving the vision for K2 Integrity. So I, I, wanna, I wanna not just dwell on the past, but I wanna talk about your vision for what we're doing now and in the future. But, but let's start for the listeners and, and maybe give folks a sense, Jules, what drove your passion and your thinking when you began your work in the 1970s and, and began to establish this field of corporate security and business intelligence? What, what drove that and, and what animates it now?
1: I would say the genesis of the original idea was actually pretty narrow. In the, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, the country was facing all sorts of issues in relationship to a corruption, a corruption in many industries, such as the printing industry in New York, where my family was involved and I watched what they had to deal with. And it was not a, it, it was not a pretty picture to, to watch. I had been an assistant DA in Manhattan, and um, I came out when my dad got sick to try to save the, uh, the business. So I—that was my first business exposure. And uh, after that experience, it was clear to me that, in addition to the uh, political corruption that was exposed in the Nixon uh, in the Nixon period and potential impeachment, there was a general A corrupt environment in the procurement or purchasing area. That's what, that's where the business began uh, back in nineteen, back in nineteen seventy two.
0: That's remarkable, and in many ways, those issues are still present with us. Certainly in the COVID period, with different kinds of fraud uh, accelerating. What what animates your passion for this work and passion for what we're doing at K two Integrity? I mean, you started nineteen seventy two we're in 2021, what, what animates your, your passion for this field? Well,
1: I've always looked at what we've been trying to do along the way with one philosophy in mind, and that is that to the extent that the processes of businesses and institutions are transparent and, and straight, then, the world is a better place, and to the extent that it's corrupt and where the deck is loaded it, it, it's a less good world and so I've always tried to find quite candidly people like you want thought other thought leaders, people with expertise so we we like to be able to stand for something, and that what I hope that we stand for is a private entity solving public policy issues in our space.
0: Thank you, Joseph. I appreciate you saying that about me. I, you raise a really important point and, and one that I think the listeners would, would appreciate, which is uh, the work that you've done has often paralleled, if not advanced public policy goals and interests. And your work is obviously paralleled with law enforcement, maybe even what intelligence services have done how have you thought about that? Obviously, you've thought about that in terms of having good effects in terms of, of what, what you're doing, but what's the role of the private sector in furthering financial integrity, security in parallel with government, overlapping with government, perhaps even in the absent, absence of governmental attention or involvement?
1: I've always thought that there should be a, a public-private sponsorship. Not across the board because it does raise it does raise complications. I I see some things that are clearly government, particularly as it relates to enforcement and uh, law enforcement and certain regulatory activities. But most of, most of those institutions suffer from a lack of resources of one kind that the private sector has. So. I've always tried to find areas where the private sector and public sector could uh, cooperate. For example, since the uh, mid-'80s, when we did the first uh, corruption, anti-corruption case against the former head of state, in this case, it was the Philippines and the Marcos family, it was a pro bono assignment for the U.S. Congress where they simply didn't have the ability to do the kind of research that we were capable of doing in the private sector. And there are many examples like that. Much of our work for non-U.S. companies and governments is because they they find it very difficult to operate overseas outside their own countries. It's slow, it's inefficient, it's very, very bureaucratic. And I think that's an area specifically that I'm most proud of. We've, We've probably... Between our former company Kroll and our current company K2 Integrity, we've probably, at this point, done close to investigations, maybe seventy heads of state, and quite often we're working with their parliaments, their congresses, um, and and sometimes their law enforcement.
0: Yes, Jules. I mean, there's no question. Part part of the legacy of your work and and the legend of of your name is. The fact that you've led most of the world's major asset recovery efforts—not um, just for for government, by the way, but for for major corporations—in uh, the context of litigation, et cetera—it's um, it's important for the listeners to know. It, you know, the Marcos case, the Fujimora case, the, Coyor, the the Mayo case in Brazil, the first era of Saddam Hussein, even current cases now, which we maybe can't talk about. Um, you're leading. Um, and have led. And that's uh, phenomenal. Let me ask you this. What attracts you to those kinds of cases, the cases of kleptocracy, high-end corruption, uh, regime assets having been stolen, uh, because you've done so much of that over the course of your career?
1: Well, one, as you know, is somebody like yourself who's got a lot more government experience than I've had. Your work and the work of Chip Ponzi, uh, Danny Glazer, Eric Lorber, or Gail Fuller and so many of our people who served the United States uh, government um, mostly at treasury but also in other in other capacities to have teams of people who've had both government experience and private sector experience is a, an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary combination among the many things that we have a chance to help out with i would say helping in the area of stemming official corruption, a corruption by, by nation states is maybe, maybe the most important work that I, I'm able to still contribute to. Uh, because when you, when you have it happening at a national state level, and you know that K2 Integrity does a lot of work in this space led by you and some of the other most senior people, the combination of working with the government and the private sector is really powerful. And it's challenging work. And we need we need more cooperation. We need much more cooperation in this area.
0: Jules, uh, I think what's fascinating about this space, too, is I think over time, government, certainly the US government, has seen this more and more as a strategic issue, not just an issue of uh, law enforcement or... Rectifying some wrong uh, with assets that have been pilfered, but you know the the proactive preventative ability to deal with corruption, high end corruption, and then the ability to effectively recover assets and hold people to account is a is a critical national security goal. We saw that recently with the Biden administration laying out the, the proposition that uh, anti-corruption efforts uh, need to and, and should. Uh, have a, a a principal place in in national security doctrine and strategy something that they're studying and and will issue a report on here shortly. I I, I think that's really important because I, I remember when I was in government Jules, there were folks who would ask me we would have meetings on these issues. Um, and in particular, before we issued our anti kleptocracy strategy in two thousand six, they they would ask, we don't even know what kleptocracy means. <laughs> what what are we what are we talking about? And so there's been a real evolution of thinking around the importance of these issues, and frankly, the importance of, I think, companies like ours that do this work and facilitate the recovery of of stolen assets. Yeah. Uh, let me
1: just pitch in. I, I I'm really glad you raised the, the point about what the Biden administration has just uh, declared in terms of fighting uh, international uh, corruption. When they made the announcement, they went out to the various they went out to the various uh, departments of government. They're going to have a report back, but it's going to be in 200 days from the announcement. That would be completely unacceptable in the private sector because governments typically move slowly. That's an example where the private sector could put something together, not in 200 days, but in 30 days, because we all understand what the problem is. We all understand which countries have literally littered the globe with corrupt uh, transactions, and people just haven't been willing to call it out until recent times. The reason we had the, the regulations put in place regarding uh, international uh, corruption or the FCPA in the late 70s was because a whole series of incidents had occurred in the earlier part of the 70s, uh, starting with Lockheed, the Lockheed scandal, where we were involved with payoffs in Japan. And really, the 70s set the stage for what was to come, come later from ourselves, and then companies like us. That's why the partnership uh, which has to be monitored. But that's why the partnership is so, so important. And in order for it to be effective, because the bad guys, they're always ahead. And we're always playing catch up. I'm sorry, Juan, I didn't mean to interrupt.
0: No, no, it's a it's great insight, Jules. And you're right, the announcement was made on June 3rd. Um, And and there's a, a long lag between that announcement and when agencies are, are going to report back. And of course, those who understand government, list, many of our listeners have worked in government or are in government, know that that's that's uh, that's then going to take time to implement. And so, you know, there there is a clear role for the private sector here, and 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 certainly you're right, Jules. You you raise the issue of monitorship and validation. I think one of the things that's fascinating about the your career and certainly the the work that K two Integrity does currently is the role of monitoring, validating, assuring. So it's not just about investigations and it's not just about remediation or fixing problems. It's actually about the ability to, to, to monitor and to validate including for regulators like the Fed, New York DFS, uh, foreign regulators, DOJ. So can you speak to that role? Because that, that is a unique sort of function that you've played over time and that K2 integrity plays both for the public sector and the private sector.
1: Well, I'm really, I'm really pleased that you brought that point up because it's one thing to conduct the investigation, whether it's done in the private sector, the public sector, or a combination, a combination of the two. You can't just leave it at that. So what happened was in the, in the late 80s. Uh, And there were some pioneers in this space, uh, such as a fellow named Ron Goldstock, who used to have, we used to be affiliated together. We were in the Manhattan DA's office, um, and, and Ron was a pioneer in creating the idea of independent inspectors general. And that began in the 80s. Its initial focus was around organized crime, when people had been arrested Found guilty or taken pleas, uh, and then I give uh, give credit to District attorney, uh, the late Robert Morgenthal, who uh, really said it isn't just enough to uh, have a criminal conviction, but it is important to make sure that there's a follow up, and so it doesn't come back. Whether it was the waste paper industry, whether it was the garbage uh, industry. Whether it was the trucking industry, there were certain industries that were uh, construction. There were industries that were controlled and dominated by organized crime, and and the broader point is that the idea of what is now called a monitorship, what originally were called independent uh, private inspector generals, now has taken hold in a number of places, most prominently the area that K2 Integrity has been involved in, in which you are one of the leaders, and that is for financial institutions who have violated either sanctions laws or uh, anti-terrorist financing or all the things that you and Chip and Danny authored those regulations when you were back at Treasury after 9-11. So we do need both the private and public sector, not just to get to the point of, of a conviction or, or a plea, but to make sure that the follow-up is there. And then there are independent people like ourselves who are making sure that, this, that the follow-up is so important.
0: Yes, Jules, it's actually one of the, the great things that I think we're doing now in K2 Integrity and the combined firms, You know, the, our partners, Tom Bach, uh, Bob Brenner led some of these very big, very extensive um, monitorships and remediations with financial institutions, global institutions. What's fascinating is exactly what you said, which is the the validation for the public authorities, but it's also the the independent consultancy and advice and counsel to the institutions themselves to actually uh, help them create sustainable cultures of compliance, systems, governance, all of that it's it it has actually become a critical role and um i've loved watching the work that we do in that space and um the great professionals we have doing it one
1: uh, if it, i'm thinking of one in particular which you know we can't comment on yet right but we do have people from around the world coming to us saying we see what you've done with bond ratings we see what you've done with monitorships we see what you've done Uh, in training uh, organizations, particularly international financial institutions. We see what you're doing regarding trying to bring the right kind of organizational and compliance regimes around crypto and organized alternative currencies. Um, And what people, uh, people are now doing is saying, well, why can't we do this in this area? We know it can be done better. We know it can be done with more integrity and transparency. That, to me, will be the most important work that I've had a chance to participate in. And I think good models lead to better outcomes. We have a lot of things now that are not working. I would say that much of the compliance regimes at many of the financial institutions are not working for a variety of reasons. They've become too much of a tick-the-box number. You have to have this many employees doing this kind of work in compliance and regulatory oversight. Check the box. You, you need to issue this m- many reports. Check the box, and so on. What we need to ask ourselves and this is not just in the private sector, but also in the regulatory sector let's be honest. Is it what's working? And what's not working? We have some great models that are working and they've transformed behavior. And then we have other examples. FinCEN is just totally understaffed. So the suspicious activity reports that the banks have hired thousands of people to check on, including firms like ours, when those are submitted, the places they're submitted to simply have not had enough staff or technology to review them. And so we, we, need to, we need to operate more in sync, but we know what we have to do. We just have to do it.
0: Jules, you're absolutely right, and you've hit on a, a common theme in CORD, the FinCAST, which is the, the inefficiency of the current regime and the, the need to focus on the forest for the trees on the effectiveness of what we're doing, whether, as you said, in the private sector or from a public policy perspective. And I th- I think is is as you know you know some of the promise is held in technology. It's why we've launched Consilient, uh, our our tech venture, and we're engaged in in more tech work now than ever before. But that's perhaps for another day. And and listeners will remember some of our conversations about those issues. Jules, let me let me return to this idea of the need for validation and assurance because I think one of the things that is, is rife in the current environment is a lack of trust a lack of an ability to assure to validate how do you think about that in the context of business intelligence uh, because there's so much data out there it's a lot of misinformation you've seen the evolution of this industry over time and and various forms of data uh, take shape over time how do you how do you think about Kind of the role of, of, of K2 integrity, your role in assessing data and providing the levels of validation and trust that clients need.
1: This is probably the most vexing question of all. We live in a world that is a wash in information. Some of that information is not accurate. It's not only not accurate, it's intentionally misleading. And it's not just coming from politicians. It's not just coming from crooks. It's not just coming from kids playing games on the, on the internet. There is a world awash in information. And, and the critical thing now is to do two things. Number one, find ways that are encourage integrity in terms of what people say and discourage things that are knowingly false this is a giant task and whether it's young children playing games over the internet or it's somebody trying to put negative information out for political purposes or to weaken a competitor's product or or service this is a societal issue there's no Technological fix. This is about a series of societies that have got to come to terms with what value do we put on the truth? What is the truth? And without getting political, we, we have divisions in countries around the world, including our own, as to what are the facts. Now, I believe everybody is entitled to their own opinion but not everybody is entitled to have their own facts. And that's, that's a societal concern that I have. And it's not limited to the United States by any measure. It's a worldwide problem. And so to the extent you don't live in totalitarian regimes, this will continue to be a challenge for our society. And we, as a, one of the organizations that works in the space, we have to do a better job figuring out. Okay, what are the solutions to this? Challenging.
0: Jules, you hit on a really important set of points. Uh, you know, information is a weapon. We've seen that but used by states, non-state actors, obviously commercial actors, and, and individuals and politicians. So, you know, how how to think about um, what truth looks like, how how to prove it, what evidence looks like are all critical issues, not just for the world of business intelligence, but it's, it's fundamental, I think, at this point with respect to the way our society functions and even our national security. Because I, I do think, and I've said this on other podcasts and in other venues, that countries like Russia purposely obfuscate the truth or purposely challenge the institutions and the ways in which we validate information and truth. That's part of their strategy. Uh, It's it's actually part of a way of allowing them greater license to do things that are beyond the pale and allows them to avoid uh, any consequences for their actions. And I think, frankly, we're going to see a bit of that come out when the Biden administration's report on the Wuhan uh, lab leak uh, comes out because the Chinese are doing everything possible not to have that be the prevailing theory. And we'll see what information is gathered and what's presented. But to the larger point, the, the question of what is truth, how do you prove it, what's the evidence, who's the validator, are all critical issues, I think, uh, in the 21st century. Think
1: of yourself around the dinner table with young children who who are inundated, inundated with information coming from forms that we, we never, well, I certainly was never exposed to as a as a as a young child or even even into my even into my 20s and, and 30s the amount of information out there is extraordinary and there there are organizations trying to do something about it in terms of legitimacy of institutions something uh, Gordon Krovitz and Steve Brill have created called NewsGuard starts with are they responsible organizations um, so you know when something is coming from one of these organizations, at least they may have a different view than you have. You may not agree with it, but they're legitimate organizations. They just happen to have a different uh, point of view. So the starting point are the one of the starting points are the entities themselves. This is not just a plug for NewsGuard, in which in which I have a a small investment, but it's also the principle: the world needs to know where are things coming from. Your Russia example is is uh, concerning because they they're very good as are certain other nation states in obfuscating who is actually putting the information out. So it's it's a challenge, but you know we've dealt with other challenges ever since the world was around. You know. Was the, was the person banging a stick in the next valley and hitting and hitting rocks? Um, what, what was that person up to? and, and uh, we we've, we've progressed a little bit from a uh, from there. It's it's more complicated, but it's always been a challenge. Always been an issue.
0: Jules, let me let me um, let me ask you then about this because it it dovetails with the the issues we're talking about. You've looked at the field of cybersecurity in various forms over time. I would argue you were one of the forerunners of the field long ago before it was even called cybersecurity. Uh, you're now a member of the board of Blue Voyant. Blue Voyant was born out of K2 intelligence. C- can you speak to how you've seen the field of cybersecurity evolve uh, data security and, and, and you know, what, what's coming next?
1: Let me put it in a broader uh, context. We began with our original assignments in what was then called data protection. And I remember being on the on the board of a company called the Computer Fraud and Security Bulletin. That was in 1977. And then we we publicized it in what we had a loose leaf service back in 78 called Crimes Against Business and one of the most prominent areas we had was data protection we had people writing on it and we had people reporting incidents so as you can imagine that goes back a good ways over time we 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 were too uh, tentative in and and doing more in the space but we always did some and we we increased it over time but we we reached a point now that i I hope that the world and leaders of the world realize that we have begun World War III. World War III is underway. Uh, it's mostly related to cyber activities, but that will escalate. And this is, my, this is my biggest concern because the game will continue to escalate both on the nation state level, and on the criminal level. And we need to get a hold of it. We need the equivalent of a nuclear arms treaty between the leading countries in the world. We need to set rules that are enforced in terms of what the private sector, individuals can do. Because every month, what happens is there's more incidents, there's more potential damage to societies, there's more cynicism and fear, and it just is growing. And we do have to call it out and call it out for what it is. And this needs to be heavily regulated, but it must be done on a multinational basis. And nobody is blameless in this one. Nobody. We must get a hold of it because It will take down grids. It will take down water systems. It will take down shipping, as we as we saw recently in another context in the Suez Canal, Uh, and and what happened to the world? One big ship, and it impacted the supply chains all over the world. Now that wasn't cyber. That was just uh, that was just a, a unfortunate situation. But we had the Colonial Pipeline. Right, without, a good part of the eastern United States was without uh, energy. A substantial portion of its energy source. Well, these things today, unfortunately, are very easy to do. So while we're building defenses, while we're training people, there needs to be there needs to be a multinational accord to deal with these issues. It's in no one's interest. It's in no one's interest. For this to continue to escalate, and it will lead to it will lead to other forms of activity, which I'm afraid will become increasingly military over time. That's my big fear,
0: Jules. That's a powerful and, and big point, and um, and I don't disagree with you. I think this is why you've seen, especially in the financial sector, but obviously other critical infrastructure uh, sectors. The, the desire to try to come to some terms with what the bounds of activity in cyberspace should look like. So we've written about, and we've, we've been part of projects to try to get agreements, at least in the cyber financial security space, which is to say, let's not disrupt uh, the global financial system. Let's make sure that responsible actors aren't doing anything to disrupt it, to destroy data, to take down payment systems, those kinds of things because you know the russians the chinese the americans the french everyone in the world that relies on that system doesn't want it to collapse we all need it to work but there are nefarious actors and, and perhaps irresponsible actors that are willing to put it at risk so we've got to figure out ways of of controlling that deterring it and and uh, managing it
1: juan you 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 coined a phrase years ago that i had not heard before which was national economic security, marrying what goes on in terms of the world's econ- uh, economies as a security, as much as security discussion and security principles as as anything else. I think it's I think it's critical for not only governments but our society to understand what it is. I don't know if societies and in countries, whether they be democracies or totalitarian states, whether they have been candid with their own people. And I do, think, I do think it's important because at the end of the day, maybe people have achieved some short-term benefits, industrial espionage, stealing of scientific secrets. Learning about people's policies by breaking into their uh, d- data systems, but this will not lead to a good place. And so, I, I think it's important for people in the private sector as well as the public sector to call these these out. It, it is it is an area that really worries me. And you know, we have most of our efforts in this area we do through Blue voyant which is our sister company that we that we we started. And it's very important for institutions around the world to understand what their true cyber hygiene looks like. But in the end, we've got to come together on an international basis as to what the rules of the road will be, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And it's got to be enforced.
0: Jules, thank you for that. And I think what What's so exciting about what we're building now together with K two Integrity is, I think the integrity services we offer to the marketplace and to clients fits within the categories of national economic security, uh, broadly speaking. And so, you know, we we try to help clients, be they private sector or even governments, think through the transparency, accountability, traceability, and security they need to be able to transact and. Uh, commercially interact in a safe secure way and so back to the earlier point you know there's a role for the private sector to play in the the development of that the evolution of that and that's precisely what we're trying to do at K2 integrity um, i'll give you an
1: ex- i'll give you an example one that of course you're personally fully aware of but i think it's it's directionally where we have to go uh, as you know one of the major investors now in blue Voyant is tomasek one of the sovereign wealth funds of of Singapore, they are putting together from a commercial point of view, uh, best in class entities that they have found so that they can create a a series of services that can can be used by private sectors to be more secure. And they're doing it, and here's a small country, a very efficient country, a very wealthy country uh, per capita, they they are approaching it because their power is more commercial than it is political. But they are approaching it and they are, they are developing a private sector solution to a public policy problem. We need more of that. Sometimes it takes entities with tremendous resources uh, to do that. But I'm also hoping that what they are doing through their sovereign wealth funds is something we will see other countries that do have substantial assets. It's in nobody's interest. Those who want to operate legitimately, it's in nobody's interest to let this situation continue to spiral out of control. This ransomware has got to stop. When we have bad actors, those bad actors have got to be put in their place in the in in a, in, in a legitimate proper way. Uh, This is an area that we're, as you know, we're spending a lot of time on and a lot of our resources. I I would urge other institutions in the private sector and the public sector to get behind this, because this is another form of climate change. It's also very important. They are changing the climate of the information world. Uh, It isn't only about rising waters and rising temperatures, but it's also about rising dangers in the world of information.
0: Fascinating and uh, remarkable insights, Jules. Thank you so much. Jules, I think we're out of time, but uh, if it's okay with you, I think uh, we should do a part two to this conversation because there's so much more to talk about and so much more the listeners will want to hear from you both your your memories, your history, but also everything you continue to work on. We didn't get into crow bond ratings. We didn't uh, talk about some of the great vignettes and and stories you have on asset recovery. Uh, I want to come back if that's okay with you, Jules. Maybe in a couple months and and have the listeners enjoy a bit more of your insights and and your career.
1: I found it interesting, of course, as always with you, Juan. You you. You ask the right questions and your innate sense of modesty. Uh, Everything I've been doing, you, frankly, you've been doing. And uh, I've just been doing it longer. That's
0: all. Jules, thank you again for uh, for joining us. And uh, I look forward to the next time we can do this. Well, thank you, Juan. It was fun. Thank you, Jules. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of FinCast. Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this, please feel free to share it with friends and family. And you can always find episodes and other great content on our website at k2integrity.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.